trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i'm your humble host coach jason coop and our podcast today is all about training complexity and while this might seem like a benign topic or maybe even an elementary topic do not confuse complicated with complexity Complicated systems like a computer program or a search engine algorithm are ones with many linear variables that we can eventually figure out through math and computation. Complex systems, on the other hand, which include the human body, are ones whose variables are non-linear and the relationships between cause and effect are much more spurious. So to help explain this further on the podcast today is Manuel Sola Aroja, whose book, The Nature of Training, The Science of Complexity Applied to Endurance Training, attempts to add some clarity to this topic. What I want the listeners to come away with during this podcast is a greater appreciation of the cause effects relationships with training and nutrition interventions on performance. Many times we want to say that this caused that. And that's something that I get into as a coach a lot. When I read research, we, we look at a specific intervention and say, yeah, we can look at this and then this thing happens. But what I'm beginning to appreciate a whole lot more is that it is much more complicated than that one to one ratio. And if we zoom the lens out far out, we need to look at many variables in order to explain adaptation, particularly in endurance events. One final word before we start this podcast is that Manuel's native language is Spanish. It is not English and his accent is quite thick. I hope you guys in the audience can appreciate that the courage that it takes for him to come on to this podcast and explain this very difficult topic in a secondary language. I think Manuel did a fabulous job with this and the information that he has to convey is certainly valuable enough to warrant some extra focus from you, the listeners, whether you're listening to this on the trail, in the car, or just sitting there at your desk. I hope you guys enjoy it. I enjoyed this podcast very much. And with that as a backdrop, I'm going to get right out of the way. Here is my conversation with Manuel Sola Aroja, all about the complexity of training. So Manuel, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you coming on board. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in your, in your work because I think it presents a, a very elegant blend of research and practice. And ironically enough, I got to translate a few of the chapters of your, uh, of your book that, that you've written <clears throat> and, and the philosophies that are contained with it are very much in alignment with a lot of the practice that, that, that I use, even though it's across a completely different sport group. So I've been looking, I've been looking forward to this for a while, but before we kick into, before we kick into anything and so the audience can get to know you just a little bit better, can you give us a little bit of a brief background on just who you are and the types of athletes that you work with? Okay. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, well, uh, I'm from Spain, from a small town in the mountains. I have competed in cycling from the age of 14 to the age of 25. And during this time, uh, cycling has become my life purpose. First as a cyclist and then now as a coach. I have lived uh, by and for cycling. When I was in training, I was reading about science, 
nutrition, materials, maybe I was too obsessive. And that's why I studied sports science at the University of Granada and later a master's degree in sport nutrition. Leaving competition, I began to focus on training cyclists. I mainly work with competitive cyclists, some professional guys are under 23, but mostly veteran athletes. However, training then is not my main activity. Uh, fundamentally, I dedicate myself to studying, reading and researching sports science and other topics. This is because I have a podcast in Spanish, which is called Ciclismo Evolutivo, where I already have almost 200 episodes and I share what I am learning and researching, where I have been, been able to interview some of my references, such as Inigo San Millán, Juan José Vadillo, Inigo Mujica, Natalia Balaguer or Kilian Jornet. And last summer, I published uh, my first book, uh, The Nature of Training, The Science of Complexity Applied to Endurance Training. It is still only in Spanish. Uh, the book has been a great success and has been the most sellable book on cycling and training categories on, on Amazon in Spain, of course, <laughs> since the, the launch. And uh, this is not a book only about sports science, but about uh, a new way to approach uh, the health and performance by the human as a complex adaptive system perspective. I am a person who likes to learn about uh, different topics, uh, not only about sports science. Uh, last years, I have been learning about complexity, ecology, economy, physiology, <laughs> uh, well, things like that. And the, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the podcast is because you're from, I'll also, I'll kind of say an era of coaches that is starting to more appreciate that we're training athletes that are more than a bioenergetic system. So I grew up in an era of coaches where we focused very much on the bioenergetics. Here's what's happening. Here's your lactate threshold. We want to train this system in order to improve this other system. And it seems like within the past, I don't know, maybe decade or so, they're, they're becoming more and more practitioners in the space. And then you being one of them and a couple of our earlier podcast guests that you just mentioned being some other ones that are starting to, that are starting to understand more of the socio-biological interplay between athletes. So I want to know how you initially got involved to understand and to try to add some of this complexity to this socio and biological interplay to where we previously thought it might have been more of a bioenergetic proposition. How, how did you initially get involved in that? Okay, uh, so my career as a cyclist first and foremost as a coach, I have felt lost and even frustrated for not being able to find a pattern of sets, loads, or periodization that works better than the others. And as I was gaining experience, I realized that this pattern did not cease and instead the pattern that I was observing did not make any sense with the theory. So I thought that learning how the body works to achieve maximum performance, which was the most important thing in the world right. for me at that time, was like uh, putting a, a puzzle no, together. But that the more I learn it, the closer I will be to finish it. But the reality is that the pieces uh, did not fit. <laughs> the more I learned it, the more those I had, and uh, not the less. 
So I was getting very frustrated because I thought that I was the only one that are not finding this pattern. But uh, talking to athletes of level and experience, I began to realize that this was not happening only to me. Some did not want to admit it, but uh, <laughs> the reality is that the majority of athletes and coaches did not even consider it. Yeah. Uh, in no case they, did they question whether the things they did made sense or, or not. They just followed what the canons dictated. No, most of the things that have been done in sport training do not have uh, evidence to support them and are done out of tradition or a phenomenon of bad dependency where the trees don't let you see the forest. Um, as I realized it, that no matter how hard I studied, I still did not have satisfactory answer to the main question of the training. And elated, exhausted by this, I began to read and become more interested in other disciplines that I liked. And I found that these same problems occurred in branches as different as biology, ecology, economics, and that there was a branch of study that it did with the interrelationship between components and that was transversal to us these disciplines and was the science of complexity. Well, and what you, what you are describing completely mirrors mine and a lot of other coaches experiences out there where we prescribe certain parts of training and we expect them to have a certain effect. And when you, when you start to analyze that over many athletes, over long periods of time, you start to appreciate more and more that the effect from the intervention that you're applying has all of these complicated differences when, within them, not only between individuals, but also with one individual over, over many, many years. And you only come to understand, you only come to appreciate that if you're really scrutinizing the data, if you're really looking at, if you're really looking at the training effects year after year through, through, through a very, through a very fine tooth comb. So what, what you're describing, it kind of completely mirrors, you know, not only mine, but a lot of other coaches experience. And, and, and it kind of gets to this root of the problem that humans are complex systems. And you've taken an attempt to, to describe what a complex system is. And I think that that's important for the listeners to know, like, what is a complex system and how is that different than just something being complicated? Okay. That's a good question. <clears throat> a complex system is a system formed by interconnected components whose main characteristic is that um, collective behavior emerges from this connection that cannot be inferred or predicted from the study of its parts separately. Uh, complex comes from the Latin word plexus, which means uh, braided, intertwined. This refers to the relationship between the, the entire system, which make it work as an integrated and inseparable whole. It is very common that, as you say, to use the word complex and complicated interchangeably, to describe systems that are made up of, of many parts. But test type of systems are very different, and their difference does not depend on the number of parts that make it up, but um, how they interact with each other. Okay, for example, there are systems like a rocket 
that are made up of a huge number of parts with those behavior is complicated. Another system made out with uh, very few parts, such as a couple, with are complex. For this reason, we can predict, for example, the position of the rocket during a space trip, but we cannot predict how our partner will feel if we buy an e-bike. So the number of parts do not make the system more or less complex. The difference between them are not due to the number of components, but to the type of integration between them. When a car, for example, breaks away, we either <coughs> repair it or it doesn't work. The function of the motor is independent of the operation of the wheel. His piece are always related in the same way. The same input causes the same output. It is predictable. He doesn't learn. However, a complex system like the organism can continue to function despite the condition in one of its parts and do so with same success. The same function can be achieved involving different organic structure. For example, an amputated or injured people can generate compensation to continue performing the same action. And in turn, the same physiological structure and synergies can give rise to very different tasks. For example, the masker not only adds to generate movement, but it is an hormonal signaler, it adds as a protection and support for other organs, it influences metabolism, and so on. Uh, for, for that, in complex system, the relationship between components vary over time and can gain or lose importance depending on the purpose and contents. For example, much of the blood <laughs> flow can go to the mask if we are exercising, but it will go to a greater extent to the digestive system if we have just eaten a strong meal or to the skin if what we need is thermoregulation. And, and the way that I've always tried to encapsulate it very simply or simplistically is it's the lack of the ability to predict what is going to happen from the output side of things. We can always control the inputs from a, in an athletic context, run at this pace, cycle at this power output, do this many hours, this set of intervals and things like that. But the output of it, how that actually affects the individual is what leads to uh, what 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 leads to the complexity of things and the fact that we can't predict that as well, no matter how finely tuned we try to hone in those variables, I think that that lot, I, I think that that encapsulates this difference between complexity and just being and just being and just simply being complicated. So let's try to get it kind of like down to. What we, what we call brass tacks. I don't know if the if there's a, a Spanish equivalent there, but into re, into the reality of of actually training an athlete. Right? We mentioned that that there's this disconnect between the input and the output. I'm going to do these workouts, and I th expect it to have this output, and it might not, in fact, have that output. How do you actually apply that knowledge to the training process, either in terms of how you prescribe things or how you actually evaluate what is going on. How do you apply this, 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 uh, this theme of complexity to the actual training process? Well, uh, after 
knowing that uh, uh, organization analytics is a complex system and knowing all the properties that the complex system have, people usually think that we don't know anything or that it doesn't matter what we do because everything is uncertain yeah. and it's chaotic. And the message I would want to convey in the book is just the opposite of science. Everything is integrated and mediated by this relationship and side effects. We have to forget about looking for the perfect or ideal training because it doesn't exist and focus on getting the right, the, the basis right, the important things only. I, I like to say that a well-designed training program is the one that flows by itself. Mm. The one that is easy to follow. If we are doing it right, we will train hard when we are ready and slow down when we are tired. I'm not saying, of course, that you never have to train tired or without desire, but as a general rule, these days should be a minority. and uh, We will not uh, do them knowing that they are part of the plan. Perception are an ancient mechanism that allow us to know the state of our body and what it needs. We have to flee from the concept of training recipes. The same training that makes you improve in one context can make you worse in a different one. As Natalia Balaguer says, athletes have to change the question. Mm -hmm. what, what, do I, <laughs> what do I have to do by the question? What do I have to take into account? Yeah. At the level of methodology, we must avoid uh, reductionism and focus more on what happened as a whole. As a whole, traditionally, training has been analyzed through isolated parameters: lactate concentration, squat strength, fat percentage, hour of sleep, and so on. But these these isolated parameters do not have uh, to determine the overall state of the loop. A drop in your blood lactate levels may mean that you are exercising with less effort, or it might also mean that you are oxidizing more fatty acids because you are more fatigued. You can be stronger in the squat and have less power on the bike or lower your fat percentage and at the same time lose performance. No? So it is not so much a question of working each parameter in isolation, but of improving the whole through coordination between them. In this aspect, I am a lower of simplifying and going to what it is really important. Global indicators that explain the state of recovery and internal load of the system as a whole, such as percep perception, and global performance indicators too, such as power, speed, or times in controlled situations that indicate how the, the group, the whole, is evolving. Training uh, is also seen as a nonlinear process where the relationship between stimuli and response is lost. In other words, an increase in loads does not have to mean a proportional increase in performance. But sometimes it can even be counterproductive. I wanna I wanna point out two pieces for what you just went over. The first piece is what you have done in the past or what an athlete, what one athlete has done in the past is not necessarily going to be predictive for how they are going to adapt in the future. And we, we see this a lot with coaches and athletes where it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? That's the phrase we would use. I did this in the past. It worked. 
I'm going to do it in the future and it's surefire going to work to work again because I have this pattern. More commonly, what we actually see in the coaching realm, that would be an athlete scenario that I just went over. More commonly, what we see in the coaching realm is I did this with this athlete and then I'm going to do the same thing with that athlete or with another athlete in the future. And, and I have always viewed that as a coaching error, partially because, first off, it it doesn't take into account the individualization of each particular athlete. You need to apply a different type of stimulus. But in addition to that, it kind of falls afoul of this, this, this complexity phenomenon where what worked in the past, even across the same athlete, might not work the same in the future. The other error that runs along kind of the same pathway as that of that that you mentioned at the very end is this nonlinear relationship between the 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 load or the training and the actual effect if i increase something by 10 percent, it's it's going to be 10 percent harder or and or 10 percent more effective that relationship is very spurious as well and, and we also see sometimes there's a negative relationship between an increase in load or an increase in stimulus and the actual effect that the uh, that, that the athlete receives or the adaptation that, that the athlete receives at the end of the day. So I, I think that when the athletes are thinking about this at the end of the day, you, you have to take those two things into consideration that you can't always rely on what has worked in the past. It might be a good guidepost, but you can't simply copy and paste that, nor can you simply copy and paste and add 10% to it because you don't know if that is going to be the same if that is going to be the same moving forward. Right. That's uh, a mistake that I had to do when I was cyclist. I tried to to reach a CTL, a certain yes. level of CTL, and then try to maintain it. But what I feel is that I can't maintain it because I yeah. can't train as hard as... I was training two, three uh, months ago, and then <laughs> when I was training to uh, train so much, my performance was uh, degenerating. But <laughs> now I understand in that moment, for me, it was like, what the hell, if I am training this, the, to do the same CTA, why I am not in a good shape? Um, <laughs> Uh, it need, you need sometimes to make face to learn. Yeah. And what Manuel is uh, referring to for the listeners out there is CTL is this chronic training load, which is it, it's predominantly used in a I wouldn't say in a cycling context, but across the people who use training peaks. And all it is, is a 42 day rolling weighted average of the mathematical training stress scores that are produced from the, uh, from, from the workout files. And that math is really not all that necessary, but the effort is a novel one, right? And it's a, and it's one that I think a lot of coaches and athletes can appreciate. We're trying to come up with a formula that will tell us how hard the session was. We're trying to apply math to it based on threshold and duration and time at intensity and all of these other variables and say, okay, this workout is a hundred 
and this workout is 90 and the workout that is 100 is about 10% harder than the workout that is at 90 or i guess the better way to put that is the workout at 90 is at 90% of the of the or 90% of the training stress as the workout at, at 100 but in reality as you have experienced and now as every athlete has experienced who's now gone through that is is the reality is 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 much different is that the 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 stress or how difficult the actual workout is cannot be merely uh represented by by this by this mathematical calculation you can use it as a gauge of yeah okay this might be a little bit harder than the other one but to say that it's exactly 10% harder or 10% easier would be an error because it's disregarding all of those other things that are affecting the athlete on the social side of things and on other areas of biology and complexity that we that the math can't essentially take into uh, uh, take into consideration. You mentioned a way that the human has to integrate it all, which is rating of perceived exertion. And I'm, ex- I'm extremely curious to hear your thoughts on what, how you view it and what is, what is it dependent on? So can you take the listeners through how you view an athlete's rating of perceived exertion and what that internal cue is dependent on okay this is a huge topic no so i am going to try to to resume but uh, for listeners they need to know that perception of effort is the main feeling we experience about how hard is uh, the exercise we do and how hard is to our body so it is not the only one uh, that in the exercise we can feel a multitude of perception and sensation pain first uh, cold heat and a uh, very long etc but the perception of effort is capable of encompassing all of these and uh, weighting them according to the importance they have at each moment to explain it easily i like to simplify the perception of effort as a kind of high capacity processor that can monitor in real time the stress data that affects the entire organism, weighting them importance according to how much they affect at this moment and in relation also to the importance that this tax has for us. And in addition, this processor will have a machine learning layer. It leans from each performance. Mm. So it's a machine <laughs> learner, right? That's like really big right now. It's literally a machine learning. Correct, correct. Uh, physiologically, the perception of effort emerges from the nonlinear interaction between the sensory dimension. So is the physical and mental effort in relation to our physical abilities. The affective dimension, which is the motivation and affectivity for the task and the cognitive uh, dimension, what we know as mentality or our capacity to build the effort. And in turn, these three dimensions are nested with an environment <laughs> and a task that are dynamic, that are never the same. It is interesting to note that fatigue and passive uh, exception are dynamic because all these variables are continuously related to each other. For example, it has been seen how fish cyclists enjoy the activity more 
and lose less affectivity with fatigue or in addiction, they are able to tolerate more mental fatigue without losing performance. Lowering the pace can decrease the perception of effort if we do it freely, but it can increase it if we lower it because we have been unable to keep up with our rebounds. And vice versa, if we are able to withstand an opponent attack and we begin to feel that we are performing better than we thought, or perception of effort might decrease even though the pace is higher due to the sudden increase in motivation. As the perception of effort is the only indicator that is capable of integrating the global state of the organism with its demand and context, it is our best option when it comes to adapting the stimuli that we want to provoke to the changing capacities of the athlete. The speed or the watts are not capable of taking into account if one day you have sleep worse or it is hot or if you are sick, no, but the perception of effort can. And saying there is no evidence that watts or speed uh, guided intervals are superior or to an structure or sensation driven workouts, why not turning around? Uh, why not use our sensation as a guide to know the stress that we are generating to the organism? I was just reminded of a couple of arguments that I've had with uh, people in the past about using rating of perceived exertion as a, as a means to control intensity. And you kind of hit the nail or you kind of encapsulated these arguments really well. And I think it's important to, 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 to kind of recap for this, for the listeners, you know, when the, you, you have been around long enough where you saw how the consumer adoption of the cycling power meter, it kind of revolutionized the, the, the sport in many ways, but it also, um, it, it also opened up a lot of blind spots kind of like un unintentionally. And that's with all due respect to the, uh, to the practitioners out there. And one of the areas it, that it did so in is the, the, how it forced the granularity of prescribing intensity kind of on the users, because you had this tool that was so accurate and so easy to get a hold of, we could prescribe things in these five watt increments, 10 watt increments, 15 watt increments and things like that. And a lot of the criticism around prescribing things based off of, uh, uh, based off of perceived exertion is that you can trick it, right? Just that you mentioned, if you like the intervals, you're going to run them faster or at a higher power output than you probably should based on some sort of physiological profile. Just because you like them and your rating of perceived exertion is going to be less, you're probably running them at a slightly faster speed. And the opposite is also true. We see this in the ultra running community as well, where they're very intense adverse. They don't like doing things at very high intensities because they spend, you know, copious amounts of time running, running at low intensities. And because they don't like doing things at a higher intensity, when they do do them, their rating of perceived exertion is probably higher compared to whatever pace or you know, power output that they should actually be doing. And I've always looked at that as a good thing. The body is naturally calibrating what, where you should be. And we're just using emotion, right? As the, as a piece that can actually calibrate it. But the other pieces that you also mentioned, 
poor sleep, excessive fatigue, other life stressors that are going on that absolutely do influence your your perception of the actual effort. That's a good thing, that integration of all of those things with the actual raw physicality, the raw physical output that the athlete is going through, integrating all of those into a into the way that the athlete controls their effort is actually a good thing because it's a representation of everything that is going on, not just the physiological bioenergetic output that a lot of the zone-based systems are actually using today. So I actually use the argument, kind of like the anti-RPE argument, and almost flip it around as a good thing because you want to incorporate that in order to make sure that you have the correct load or in order to to try to get closer to the correct load of 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 everything that that, that is that is going on um so I, I like i said i just really appreciate that um that, that description of how rpe can be influenced and we can use that to our uh to to our advantage this whole conversation is make kind of reminds me of of one of the things that we try to do as coaches is we want to make sure our athletes are improving, right? We, we, we apply training to them. We hope they're better at the end of the day than they are at the beginning of the day. Once you kind of go through the entirety of the training cycle, but because the, the body is so, is so complex, how can you measure the training process or improvements in the, in the training process? Should we even be applying numbers to this in the traditional way that we demark personal records and your fastest 60 minute you know power output or your highest 60 minute power output or whatever how can we actually measure the training process or improvements over time well in a way uh, we need to use the information or the data we have to know how the training is going so as i say previously we can use lpe Position of effort to train, but also I like to use global indicators of the how the the whole organism is evolving to know if the training is working or not. For example, you can do tests of, um, for example, twenty minutes test on yeah. cycling. Oh, okay, yeah, all of them. And I think they are better than trying to measure isolated parameters as lactate or bio 2 mass. But also there is a problem in the way that we think that the only thing that matters in the training is what we can measure. Right. No? It, yep. It's very famous, this quote of Kelvin, who, is, who says, uh, what can be measured uh, can be improved. But the reality is that things that can be measured are the exception, not the norm. Yeah. How do we measure courage, uh, art, justice? Uh, we should despite this thing just because we can measure them. No? And uh, human beings are, are capable of perceiving the enormous complexity of nuance that this world triggered to emotion and apprehension. So if I try to transfer everything I feel, in training to a number in the world scale, I am losing information about enjoyment, about energy, pain, pleasure, purpose. 
for this reason, a conversation is often much better than a piece of information. And of course, some power of speed data without knowing the perception of effort behind it are useless or almost nothing. No? So I like a quote that is from Donella Meadows that say, be careful not to confuse effort with result, mm. or you will end up with a system that is producing effort, no result. No? Mm. If your goal is to improve your critical power or your VO2 mass, you can end up generating training program that optimizes this path of the set at the cost of degrading performance. Mm. No? Uh, a, few, a few days ago, a man came out of the news in Spain who went to the doctor worried because his small watch showed with zero hair rates. It went viral and many doctors commented that they had a patient like this. Uh, as you say, later uh, we have to try to reconnect with our body yeah. and learn to listen to ourselves. Our body has evolved to inform and add in response to, to different needs and indicated the most adaptive behavior at all times with thirst, pain, effort, or, or cold. So it's a serious mistake that we are leaving this ancestral mechanism. Uh, we are trying to um, inhibit them by stimulation, for example, with caffeine or with painkillers. But here's the thing, though. Entertain me for, for just a second. Athletes want to know, are they better, worse, or the same? this year compared to last year. They, they want some sort of stoplight style indicator system, right? Green for your better, yellow for you're the same, red, red for you're the worse. And th there's been a tremendous amount of effort amongst physiologists and coaches and even the device manufacturers, right? The wristwatches and the power meters and things like that to try to tease out this, are you better, are you worse, or are, are, or are you the same? I know that we want to take a complicated, integrated approach to it, but at the end of the day, the, the, the athlete wants a, like a relatively like simple answer. Can, can we or should we try to boil it down to one of those simple answers? Or is it just one of those things where we're going to, we have to be okay with the unknown that you don't know if you're better, or worse or the same. That's kind of what the athletes like want to get out of it. Like, can we, can we have a realistic way to determine that? Or is it so complicated that we have to leave it up to faith, which is what a lot of athletes are not going to want to do. Right. Yeah. No, the athletes need to learn to dance with uncertainty mm. because they want, of course, I know they want you who listen to this, <laughs> you want a, a exact number of how fit you are, but there is no this number because as you can see in any professional athlete, you can race this week and have a, one performance and next week, se from seven days from now, you have a, a much uh, higher or much lower performance. So you need to understand that you have no uh, performance uh, level because of performance 
or fit state is dynamic. It changes because everything that surrounds us is changing all the time. I think that you have to live with some degree of uncertainty is something that everybody can take to heart. And in the cycling world, I know that there's been a, there's always been a bigger and bigger push to make things more certain, right? We know if you want to win the Tour de France, you have to have X watts per kilo, right? You want that, you kind of like want that level of certainty kind of coming into the race. But I think that, that once again, the audience for this uh, podcast is predominantly going to be trail and ultra runners. They have to deal with a lot of uncertainty because the data just isn't quite as, quite as good as it, as it is on the cycling side. But your point is well taken that I think that, you know, there is this kind of like fine line that we, we do have to degree, we do have to live with some degree of uncertainty. And once an athlete becomes really well trained, they become highly trained. It's hard to find that signal through the noise because the difference that you are really looking for the meaningful differences that you're looking that you're really looking for are so small compared to all of the other things that are impacting their athlete the athlete their mood state you know um how well they slept the previous night how much they're enjoying things a purpose and things like that all of those things are usually orders of magnitude or we can envision that they're orders of magnitude difference as compared to the things that we actually can measure that living with it with that uncertainty is kind of a reality and we see this you know this just as well as i do we see this in the actual physiological testing data where we can bring an athlete in and i'm going to have my lab manager come in just a couple hours from now to be honest with you to do a podcast on this we see athletes come in once a quarter, every single quarter, and at the at, after a certain amount of time, there you can't tease out any additional improvement from the physiological data. Yet they can perform better or worse depending upon what what all of these other variables uh, are going on. So I guess what I'm starting to say is is what we can me- <clears throat> excuse me what we can measure starts to decouple from the actual performance and the way that we can explain that decoupling or try to explain that decoupling is just the complexity of the entire system. Okay, yes, um, in my book, I explain this uh, decoupling with a distribution, a probability distribution. Because for example, the, the performance of an athlete is uh, it's like a, a Gaussian distribution, a, a bell curve, you know. You can, for example, do, I don't know, 20, uh, 20 tests, no? 20, 20 minutes mm. test. And the media could be uh, uh, 300 watts. But um, there will be some randomness. Sometimes you will perform better than the average, and sometimes you will perform below. When you improve the median of the Gaussian distribution, moves to the right but there is also possible that you are a fighter no and on average but you perform below the uh, watts or below the mm-hmm. the performance that you had uh, two months ago so the reason is or the problem is that you can be fitted in overall but one specific day because motivation because i don't know sometimes we are not uh, machines no but because everything you um, you perform that that day 
is, is below and you don't need to be worried about this because it's normal, uh, but you can't uh, think that your performance or your fit state depends only on the previous test. Uh, this is a problem of many cyclists that think yeah. that I only work uh, as my previous test say. Yeah, well, here's and here's how it comes into reality, right? And you know this as a coach. Athletes always want to know if they're better, worse, the same. We just went through that. It takes a lot of data to actually tease that out. And sometimes you can only tease it out with a cert, with a, a, with a, some degree of certainty, right? Plus or minus ten percent or twenty percent, kind of whatever you want to, whatever you want to use. And when you're at a really trained state, finding that signal through the noise becomes very difficult. And like I said, you have to have a lot of workout data. What from a pragmatic point of view, I want to drill this down into things that the athletes can actually take away. One of the things that I do with with an athlete is just take their performance over their workouts for an entire three month period. And so that's going to be 20 or 30, you give an example of a hundred times, right? That's only going to be 20 or 30 performances that we're kind of like averaging together and seeing how that average stacks up with the previous year's data. And even then it gets extremely fuzzy. So it would be an error to say, I did this one workout better or worse than I did last week, the week before, the phase before, or things like that, because it's only one instance at, at a point in time. The real way to get at it is to pool a lot of data over long periods of time. And most people just don't want to, they don't want to take that, that kind of global approach with looking at it, but you really have to do in order to get kind of the best assertion of things and then realize that those that's still going to have some shortcomings in it because of the picture that you're that you're that, that you're trying to encapsulate correct uh, i think some especially in cyclists because in trail runners i see that they know themselves better but yes. in, in, mm -hmm. especially in cyclists i think some people are it by numbers or yeah. they try worse than they could because they want continuously to perform better than last session better than last week and when something is wrong when you when your last ride is worse than last week there is a problem and they want to change everything uh, yeah. to train harder to eat less <laughs> yeah so so a lot of times, if they will not have power meter, it will be better for them because you work. I remember when I started to racing, you work without knowing if you are improving or worsening. There is some problem with it, but the good thing is that you work and don't think about it. <laughs> and yeah. The results come. Yeah, because yeah, it'll cut you do the work, it'll come and sometimes you have to deal like you said, you have to deal with a certain amount of uncertainty. I, I think that that's one of the big take home points that I as a coach and I try to relay to my athletes, I try to reemphasize with appreciating these complex systems even more is that it's okay to have that level of, of uncertainty you do need a blend of feeling and data to kind of 
to 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 re- to really tease things out. But don't assume that just because you know the numbers are going up, everything is better, or the numbers are going down and everything is worth worse. You have to take a more comprehensive approach with it, and that's just something people just don't like. They're not wired to do that. They kind of, they want to know the answer, right? Just give me the answer. I want to know what the number is. Is it red, yellow, or green? And then I can kind of kind of go on with my day. Um, I, I really appreciated this, uh, the, the, this conversation. Like I said, I, 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 uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed your work. I've tried to get a lot of it translated as, as you know, the listeners can, can tell English is not your, your first language. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and being a, a good sport about it before we, um, let you go, where can the listeners learn a little bit more about you, your book and your podcast? Well, uh, as I say, um, I have a, a podcast and a book in, in Spanish, so they can uh, search for Ciclismo Evolutivo in whatever, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple. But I I am trying to, well, I am working on translating my, my book to English, so I hope uh, soon uh, they can read it directly and um, i also hope that i improve my my english almost everything my pronunciation because i i can understand you but for me it's hard to to talk so i'm sorry if people don't understand me uh, as good as they could Dude, don't apologize one bit, Manuel. Like I, I like I said, I really appreciate your work. I appreciate you coming on and you'll get better, man. I've brought people back on this podcast where English is not their uh, first language and the, the audience appreciates it. And I appreciate it because you bring good information to the table. So that has to be the star of the show. Thank you for coming on the podcast. All the links to what uh, uh, Manuel just mentioned will be in the show notes. I hope you guys go and check it out. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Manuel for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciated all of his insight into the complexity of training. And this is an area that within my coaching career, I am beginning to appreciate more and more. I used to think that it was a very specific thing that caused an adaptation. We did an intervention, we took a nutrition supplement, and we saw this kind of linear or one-to-one relationship between cause and effect. And you see that out in some of the popular literature today where I take a supplement and it caused an improvement in my heart rate variability or my sleep or an improvement in performance or whatever it is. And when you scratch down beneath the surface, what you should be beginning to appreciate is that there are many variables that go into that. Those variables are nonlinear and it's very difficult to understand all of the interplay within all of those variables to explain these types of phenomenon. Yes, we can come up with direct practices, but I think all too often we tend to oversimplify what is going on and we need to broaden the lens out and appreciate all of the different many nonlinear types of interactions that are going on within the day-to-day, within the human, within an athlete in order to track outcomes and performance. That's it for today, folks. I appreciate the heck out of all you listeners. As always, this podcast is brought to you without any sort of sponsorship or endorsements, and that's so I can keep it as unbiased and unfiltered and unadulterated as possible. I hope you guys appreciate this. If you do, please feel free to share this podcast 
with your friends, your family, probably your training partners. That would mean a lot to me and I hope the knowledge means a lot to them as well. That's it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. Thank you.